to me, that one moment in time reinforces why training and communication and discipline and everything that we stress in aviation is so important because so much was happening in that aircraft at that point in time and, and that crew handled it exactly the way it was supposed to be handled. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Hey gang, I am excited and pumped to be back with you today and to bring you this episode. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it and it'll be the one that you end up passing around. The last episode, I was heading off to Rockhampton. Well, that all went well. I got to, to fly in the Eagle 2-on-2 single again with Terry. It's a, a beautiful machine. It's just a you know a joy to fly with that, that great Huey uh, blade slap sound that goes along with it. Now, Terry flies in Indonesia out of the Grasberg mine site up from Freeport which is a huge open pit copper mine starting at 14,000 feet. And they actually have glaciers up there at that height in, in the tropics. It's hugely challenging long line work that he's involved with and a lot of uh, sort of slope um, avalanche control and, uh, and basically resupply for the, the mine site up there at that height. So I'm hoping I can corner him in an interview later this year uh, and actually talk about some of the operations that he's involved in up there. Final preparations are underway now for World Helicopter Day. There has been a, a few more locations come on board, including in Tanzania and Panama. Our local open day here in, in Brisbane, Queensland, is shaping up to be a lot of fun. And the especially the American Helicopter Museum, in particular, those guys have got a huge lineup of uh, speakers and demonstrations on. So well done to, to those folks. If that wasn't enough, I also got a photo of me on, on page three of our local uh, newspaper, uh, Plugging World Helicopter Day. Now, someone whose photo has appeared in many more papers and magazines than almost any other helicopter pilot in the world is today's guest, and I'm very sure that he wishes that wasn't the case. Mike Durant was the aircraft captain of Blackhawk Super 64, a US Blackhawk that was shot down in 1993 in Mogadishu, Somalia. He was then captured and held prisoner for 11 days. The events of the mission were captured in, in the book and then later the movie Blackhawk Down. After Mike left the, the army, he wrote the book In the Company of Heroes, which chronicles his first-hand experiences of the events there in Mogadishu. It is something that you would hope you would never, ever have to experience in your own lifetime. And at the same time, the acts of professionalism and, and bravery that come out of the events on the, on the day and, and before and after are just you know, absolutely inspiring and, and just jaw-dropping. For many of us, that's about as much as you would have exposed to of, of Mike's story, both before and after Somalia. Uh, but there is so much more to tell, and that's where we head in this interview. This guy is absolutely the real deal when it comes to special operations helicopter flying. Now, this is probably the, the most nervous I've got preparing for and, and doing an interview yet for the show, as I was definitely feeling a little bit of hero worship going into it. And Mike doesn't disappoint. He is a very inspiring individual. Let's get into it. Mike Durant, thank you very much for being uh, available to have a talk on the Rotary Wing show. So a big welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Mike, um, 
when people hear your name and I guess the story Black Hawk Down, they, you know, they think of a two-week period there in 1993 and a lot of the focus is on that. But I guess I want to sort of fill out, you know, before and, and after that sort of thing. But, you know, my background, so Black Hawk Pilot in the Australian Army with um, about two years in special operations. But I never actually, you know, apart from seeing the movie, and I'll talk about later on how I actually saw the movie for the first time, but hadn't read the book and your uh, book and the Company of Heroes until the last two days. But I've got to tell you, you're a you know you're a card carrying badass mofo, <laughs> and not someone that you're going to want to meet in a dark alley if you were planning to get to, to no good. And uh, I guess you know that happened a long time before the events in Somalia. Uh, so I don't know. Do you see yourself in that sort of light? You know, it's funny. At this point in my life, I, I'm not so much. You know, it, it's almost like a, a, another chapter, really. It, you know, the challenges that I have today are so different. And, you know, I have a family now, and things are much more normal. So thinking back, you know, on on those times, it's all almost, uh, I don't want to say it's like a dream, but it seems like just some other part of my life that happened a long time ago. And and I, I, uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I miss it, but... Uh, in terms of the day-to-day, I've kind of kind of moved on. It's funny. I've just done the school run this morning and dropped the kids off and uh, back here at home. But, uh, yeah, sometimes a bit like that for me too. I've got to pinch myself and think, actually, you know, did I ever do any of those bits and pieces? But uh, some of your personality in the, in the book especially comes through that, you know, you had a, a really intense personality. And I was kind of picturing myself there as if I was a junior pilot and I was scheduled to uh, on the flying program to come up with a, uh, a check ride with you, I think I'd be uh, swatting up for the, the two nights beforehand because I could expect to get a bit of a, a bruising of the ego. Well, you know, it's funny that, you know, I think back about the early days of my flying career and, and uh, you know, the first time I thought about something like you just described was when I was in flight school and I, you know, I was a warrant officer candidate and I, and I saw a W-2, which in, in the U.S. Army, most of the pilots, not, not all, but a lot of the pilots are warrant officers. And a W-2, when you're in flight school, seems like, you know, you know, will I ever make it that far? And then and then you look back when you're a W-3 or a W-4 and that that is really such a junior person. So it really just, you know, your perspective just dramatically changes depending on where you are at, at whatever phase, uh, you know, certainly in the aviation world. So we all have people that... Uh, I guess we can uh, fly left seat with and others we can fly right seat with and, uh, you know, it just changes as you go through your life. <laughs> Tops. All right, well, let's talk about how you got the, the flying bug. So how did you get involved in the in the whole flying game to start with? Well, it's from a small town in, in New Hampshire, which is in the uh, extreme northeastern part of the U.S. and uh, not really near much aviation, not much military around us. Uh, there was National Guard, which is... You know, for us, I guess you could call them part-time military. It's not a, that doesn't do it justice, but that's the easiest way to describe it. Uh, and my dad was actually in the National Guard, uh, so I didn't I didn't have a lot of exposure to aviation. And then there was a friend of the family who had a uh, an aviation business in the southern part of the state. He owned a few airplanes and uh, one or two helicopters. And one summer, he asked my dad and I if we wanted to go on a flight. And New Hampshire is pretty mountainous. It's not the highest mountains in the in the states, but uh, you know there's some pretty good good sized peaks there. And we flew over the top of the highest one in the Northeast. It's Mount Washington, and we were in a, an H3 and uh, you know pretty primitive basic helicopter. But to me, that moment will forever stay with me because 
I was probably 12, 13 years old, and I thought, you know, this is what this guy does for a job, and if if somehow I could ever make it to where this is what I did to make a living, that would be the absolute realization of a dream, and and and, and that's what really started it. It was a, an amazing experience, and I think everybody remembers their first flight in a helicopter, and mine was special because uh, my father was with me, and you know, to see that that kind of uh, scenery, you know, flying over what we call the presidential range uh, on a beautiful day, it was absolutely amazing. You then, I think you joined the army and you did a bit of time in in Panama as a Spanish uh, intercept operator uh, before you actually got through uh, back to pilot's course. But I was reading there, and in, in one of the notes, I think you said you you soloed at about seven hours, and that seems really low. So I was just going to see, was that like a standard thing for the army training, or had you done some stick time before that? No, it's pretty standard. I mean, most guys or gals will solo between, I think, five and ten, six and ten, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, it's a very, very at the time, uh, Hughes 500, a very basic helicopter, and actually some aspects of it a little more challenging because it had a manual throttle. But other than that, pretty simple to fly, and uh, you know, it's basically designed to just build your confidence. And most people do it. I mean, if you've made it that far which is not very far, but if you've got that to that point in the training and you've passed, you know, the basic uh, orientation piece and you got through that, the academics that get you to that point and those first few flights you're comfortable with, it's a real uh, confidence builder. And, you know, you do a couple patterns and that's it and that's it. And then the IP gets back in. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, flying here as an instructor, um, you know, civility, you know, I look at the folks at seven hours and, uh, we normally wait till they're around the 20-hour mark before they go. So, yeah, and I think even in Australian Army, when we did the training, I think we were probably around the 20-hour mark before they uh, were game enough to, to let us go. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, and then you went did uh, Hueys, uh, I guess, and then uh, operational type training for Blackhawk? Yes, the Blackhawks had just come out. I mean, there were, there were some late 70s models, Blackhawks, but there were uh, not very many built at the time. So the early 80s models, Blackhawks, are pretty much the – the first aircraft uh, you'll see, you know, in use in the U.S. Army. And uh, so with me going to flight school in 83, it was still pretty new. And uh, there was only one Blackhawk slot in my class, and I got it. And, uh, you know, again, that, that was just another dream that I had uh, been thinking about all the way through flight school. And, and, you know, to get it was just amazing. And, you know, I, I thought about the, the first day I, I flew, which is an amazing experience. And then the first day you solo, which is an amazing experience. And then when you transition from the, the trainer aircraft to a Huey, which today looks like a dinosaur, but at the time it, it looked like the space shuttle to me. And then you go from a Huey to a Blackhawk. And it's just these milestones in, in my aviation career that I think back on and, and, uh, you know, just, uh, so pleased to be able to kind of, you know, make it into that next phase and fly that next machine and, take advantage of its capabilities. I mean, a Blackhawk, just an amazing aircraft, as you know, and, uh, and you know, to be turned loose uh, with one of those at a fairly junior point in my career was uh, was pretty special. Yeah, very much so. We'll come back again. I guess we'll talk about the 160th shortly and what it's like to, you know, take off with, you know, you fully kitted out Blackhawk and the, and the guys in the back, and um, we'll, we'll get to that one shortly. Uh, heap of stuff here to talk about, so I'll, I'll um, flick ahead. So you went uh, and you posted to Korea as a medivac pilot, and you flew uh, Hueys and Blackhawks over there. And you know, a couple of numbers that says that you know you're 23 years old and you had about 149 medivac missions. And in the book, in the Company of Heroes, you talk about you know one particular flight there through a, a snowstorm around Seoul. 
But again, like, and coming from my context, 140 medivac missions seems like a lot. Like, you know, was there soldiers falling all, down all over the place? Or what was the, like, it just seems a, you know, like a, a high rate, rate of effort. Well, in Korea, it's a little bit unique, at least it was at the time. I don't know if it's still that way now, but we didn't fly just uh, military missions. We flew uh, civilian missions. We flew dependents. So it wasn't just soldiers. And, and uh, we had the whole northern region of the country. So it covered a pretty broad uh, geographical area. So it, it would be standard to have, you know, at least three or four missions in a week on standby. And, and those ranged everything from traffic accidents to, you know, injured soldiers to sick family members. Uh, we rescued people during a flood. It was all sorts of different things. Okay, no, that makes more sense in context because I was thinking that they were all training accidents. And I was kind of thinking, you know, in, in the Australian context, we just wouldn't be able to sustain that kind of thing. Everything would have been pulled to a, a stop. But, yeah, there's a, again, for folks who are listening, there's a, a great story in your book about, um, you know, one of those missions uh, trying to fly around the uh, Forbidden Zone in Seoul City, you know, during snowstorms and things like that. So that's a good story in the book for folks to check out. Well, I always say that that was probably the best first assignment I could have gotten. And the reason is, you know, the missions in a, what we call an air assault battalion are, are arguably more difficult, you know, formation flight and, and sling loads and all those other things that, that, are, that are, you know, can be hard to do depending on the, on the circumstances. But the thing about medevac is it puts you, you're by yourself, essentially. You, you are, you know, and I was the first Blackhawk pilot to get to the unit, so I was put in a pilot in command position immediately, and I'm out there on these missions, young, inexperienced, and I've got to make these decisions. And there could not have been a better way for me to mature as a pilot than to be put in that position. And, and you know, the good news is I survived. I mean, you know, the, the downside to that is you can put people in situations that are a bit over their head at that point in their careers, but through uh, maybe some good decision-making and uh, good training and great people around me, we got through it together, and I came out of there feeling very confident in my capabilities. We flew a lot also, and that was another great advantage. You know, first assignment out of flight school, the last thing you want is to go someplace where you're not even going to you know, barely make minimum. So we, we flew a ton, and I came out of Korea with you know, close to 1,000 hours, and, and that's pretty good for a first assignment. Yeah, definitely. And then from then, you rotated back in to the 101st? Right. And that's, you know, a great organization. Again, very difficult missions. You know, a lot of uh, multi-ship, night vision goggles, sling loads, tactical operations, and, and really added to the the, uh, the experience that I already gained uh, from Medevac and, and, and had a real understanding of, you know, the air assault mission and, and, you know, all the unique aspects and the challenges that come along with that. There's one photo of you, Mike, as a lead helicopter on a it looks like a long taxiway with a you know heap of helicopters lined up behind you. How big were the the formations that you would sort of routinely fly in? Yeah, that photo uh, it, that probably is one of the biggest formations I ever led. I think there's I don't know it was close to the whole battalion with their aircraft. I think there's probably I don't know I don't remember, but there's over twenty I think, and we wouldn't do that routinely, but every now and then we would, and it was you know to show that we could, I guess. But normally, you know, air assault missions would, would vary from, you know, maybe four to, to six aircraft in a lift. How long does it take to actually form up before you get in between yeah. start and takeoff in one of those formations? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, you can run out of gas by the time you get everybody lined up. But, uh, no, it, it wasn't too bad. You know, we, we because it was an air assault unit, we were very well-versed and, 
in how to manage the run-up and how to manage the communication checks and get everybody lined up as quickly as possible. So, you know, I really don't recall it so long ago, but I would say you could probably get it all done by the time everybody was fully up and running. You could get everybody lined up in maybe, you know, less than 10 minutes. Okay, that's pretty impressive. That's not bad. Is there a highlight from that period that sort of stands out for you? Uh, the 101st, you know, you know, I went to IP school, instructor pilot school, so that, that's a highlight because it was my dream. You know, I wanted to be one of the one of the leaders, one of the instructors. So I I, I got a slot to uh, to the IP course while I was in the 101st, and I think that mission actually is one of the highlights. You know, leading that many aircraft, on, even on a training mission, was a lot of fun, and you know, proud that uh, I got the rose pinned on me to do it. So, you know, I think the overall experience was great. You know, we didn't go to combat during the time that I was there, but a lot of great training missions and really helped uh, helped prepare me for the next phase of my aviation career. And I guess at that time, with that medivac experience in their 101st now instructor pilot, like you would have been feeling pretty at the top of your game. And then to go to the 160th, like did it really feel like you were taking down a couple of pegs? And that's the harsh reality of it. You know, you walk in the door and uh, I don't think – it, maybe it's quite that that way anymore. But when I when I got there, uh, the, the unit guys almost didn't even give you the time of day. I mean, it was like until you proved yourself, got through green platoon, and and you know got in and showed that you could uh, hold your own, you were almost uh, considered a, an inferior human being. And you know, I, I didn't mind. I, I understand. I gotta I gotta get through this to to be a part of this amazing organization. I was happy to do it. The thing I probably didn't realize until reading the book there too is that, like, one sixty, it's not just uh, special forces transport, which is kind of what we were. We, we used to think we were pretty cool, but we we're really just transport for the um, for the special forces. But you guys were actually pretty much special forces yourselves. So the selection process, even just the physical side, you know, seventy two push ups, seventy two sit ups, and two miles in thirteen minutes. Like, there's not that many pilots out there who can can crack that out. I imagine. No, the, you know, the, the training just to get through the qual course for the 160th uh, today because of the advanced aircraft takes over a year. So, you know, you've already been through flight school. You've already been, you know, in another unit. Uh, I think most of the time we are looking for, and when I say we, you know, I think uh, to me the 160th that will always be part of me. So I'll use the word we, but, um, you know, we're looking for people with at least a thousand hours, but even after having all of that experience and qualification, it takes about a year to get through a basic green platoon, which includes everything from you know land navigation, uh, weapon skills, life-saving techniques, you know obviously a ton of physical fitness, a lot of psychological stuff, swim tests, and then you go into basic navigation in the aircraft where you have to you know unless things have changed, and I don't think they have. There's there's uh, pretty hard fast rule that we're going to be able to navigate to a target with or without GPS or any kind of nav system. So there's a lot of focus on, you know, still that basic uh, map reading and ability to navigate, you know, based on those proven methods of, uh, you know, time distance heading. So you get through all that and then you get into your advanced aircraft. And now because of all of the systems on those aircraft, all of the, the various missions i mean there's terrain falling radar there's aerial refueling there's i mean there's so much stuff on those birds it it takes a long time to get fully qualified on all those things and and then at the end of all that you're still the new guy you know when you walk through the door so it's uh it's it is a fantastic organization and has just amazing people and uh, I'm, I'm 
fortunate to have been a part of it. You covered off a couple of things. I was going to talk about too is that that range of skill set. Like um, you've got all your IF and MVG bits and pieces that you normally do as a helicopter pilot, but then you've got the you guys are doing gunnery, halo, in-flight refueling. Like there was a, just a, a massive amount of I'm not sure what your currency checks were like, but you'd almost just go from currency check to currency check just to, to cover everything. Yeah, which again, you know, if you're somebody who likes to fly, it's a great unit to be in because to maintain proficiency in all those things, you are constantly, even if you're not on a, on a combat rotation, you're training because, you know, if you're in Afghanistan, you're not doing ship deck landings and, you know, you may or may not do, be doing area refueling and you're probably not doing instrument flying. So when you get back, I mean, people get a break, but still, you've got to, you know, fine-tune or, or regain proficiency in all those things. So it is a constant cycle to stay up on everything, that's for sure. There's um, one little story you talk about in the um, escape and evasion training where you had to sleep out and you had the sleeping bag and you put your uh, water bottle in the sleeping bag with the hope that, uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning, at least you'd have some water to drink. And uh, even even the water inside the sleeping bag froze overnight. It was cold. Yeah, <laughs> that you know, I, cold. I don't think I I ever would have believed that North Carolina got that cold, but it uh, it certainly did. No, so yeah, some you know stories. And you talk about you know the best helicopters, best equipment, best budget, and some of the background in, in the in the book about you know the the background to one sixtieth and why it was stood up and the and the type of organization it is. So again, for professional reading for anyone who's in the military, it's I can't believe I I didn't read it um, until just now. But but again, even in the unit, so you had a progression then from uh, co-pilot to command pilot to, to flight lead, and, and I guess you went through that progress and, and you were a, a flight lead and had your own uh, flight element. I was, and again, you know, as I've said a couple of times already in this discussion, you, you're sort of always thinking about what is that next thing that I could achieve, and, and uh, you know, after getting in the unit and seeing all of the, the – uh, the respect really that the flight leads got and the responsibility that they have to manage these complex missions, plan them, manage them, execute them. That's who I wanted to be and, and was, uh, you know, given the opportunity to do it and uh, just absolutely loved every minute of it. And of course, you know, the, the huge pay grades that would come with those extra positions. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wish. Yeah. Yeah. We always used to look at that, you know, I think, um, you know, civilian world, you know, you step up in those positions and you get, uh, you know, you can measure it uh, return on uh, on sort of value creation. But, uh, yeah, it's all all the one level. The um, Mike, where I was going to go next is just that if you describe that feeling of, you know, strapping on, on a Black Hawk when it's up and running with, um, you know, 18 door kickers in the back, uh, your crew, everything's fully armed up. You know, what's how do you describe to people what that sort of feels to, to actually strap in like that? I think you feel somewhat invincible. I really do because you know it's not just you. It's it's a group of badass dudes that are probably capable of doing just about anything, and and you're a part of it. And it's probably what it feels like to be you know part of a professional sports team. Uh, you know that dominates just that just absolute sense of confidence and trust in, in the folks that are on your team and, you know, willing to take on just about every, anything. And, you know, to me, the visualization of it is there's a, a scene from Black Hawk Down where we're flying over the ocean and, and the, the camera angle is from above and I don't remember the song that's playing, but it, to me, that that's the essence of it. You know, we're going into combat. We got all these door kickers ready to go. 
And I mean, it's 20 something helicopters and we're going to, you know, going down range to punch the bad guys in the face. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it's just an amazing thing to be a part of. And I, I do miss that part of it. I can tell you that. Yeah, very much so. And I'll talk about it, I guess, when we get to talk about Somalia, but uh, how quickly that, you talk about how quickly that, that feeling went from that, um, you talk about being indestructible as an iron dragon to, to being very vulnerable. But it's not as though you just turned up in, in Somalia and, and that was kind of where things started. Like, you, you know, you did Persian Gulf operating, you know, off barges in the middle of the Persian Gulf, uh, Panama, you know, the stories in Panama are about, you know, being out over the ocean while stealth fighters are coming in, you had a thousand paratroopers dropping in, you got little birds, you got Apaches, like not to, you know, glorify war and things like that, but, but when you're training, that's like to see that much coordination and, and I guess, capability come together and, and be there spectating and be part of that you know that that just must be again fairly surreal it really was you know panama was the first what i call in my life anyway true combat experience and you know there are many times before where we had thought we were going to go do something and it you know things improved really and we were not called upon to go and uh, you know in that in that particular case we continued to say, well, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I remember, you know, H hour was 1 a.m. in Panama, and we're, we're approaching a place called Rio Hato, and we see this flight of 17 C-130s going overhead, and it's about to be the largest paradrop in combat since Vietnam. And the stealth bomber, which we sort of didn't even really know what it was, we, we knew of it, and we knew, you know, sort of what its capabilities were, was supposed to start the war, and boom, right at 1 o'clock, 2,000-pound bomb goes off on the airfield, and, and we're looking at each other like, well, I guess we're in it now. And uh, kind of an amazing uh, thing to witness. Actually, first time Apaches were ever used in combat, and they were on that mission too. So, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty special. And, you know, the thing about it is, that, to me, that was one of those missions that really epitomizes the 160s. We had been planning that thing for five years. And, you know, we knew that Noriega, who was the – the leader of Panama at the time, you know, he had kind of gone anti-U.S. and became problematic, and we knew sooner or later something was going to happen that, that met the criteria for us to go do that. And sure enough, he did, and uh, we, we lived up to our, our commitment, which I think is very important for the United States. If we say we're going to do something and we're antagonized to the point where, you know, that line is crossed, to me, our national credibility depends on the fact that we're willing to you know, fulfill that commitment and do what we said we we're going to do and hold people accountable. And, and that's exactly what happened there and turned out, you know, good for the Panamanian people and good for us in the end. And um, with that amount of planning, like, can you still remember back and, and kind of visualize flight routes that you never actually executed on, but that you'd spend so much time sort of visualizing, memorizing the, the features on the flight route that you can still remember some of those flight routes? No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the the one advantage you have in, in a unit like that is that there is a, a an understanding by the leadership that you know we have to be as prepared as we can be because a lot's going to depend on these missions and and I wouldn't say it's a blank check but there's there's a lot of, of resources applied to making sure that we fully understand all the risks and all the challenges on these operations so you know we did everything we could in the years leading up to that to build scenarios and put ourselves in situations that were very similar to 
what we thought we would encounter on that particular mission. And in the end, it wasn't exactly what we thought, but it was pretty close in terms of, you know, the, there were missions going around, going off all over the country at the same time. My, mine was just, you know, one subset of the whole thing. And all of that had been rehearsed before. Not exactly the same, but, you know, very similar. I mean, we liberated a, an agent who was being held in a, in a prison in, in downtown Panama at exactly the same time. That was a little bird mission. You know, there were you know, Navy SEALs out taking out, you know, ships and airplanes on the airfield, and it was all this multi-pronged, simultaneous. You know, if you think about that mission, it is probably the textbook soft operation, really, when you think about, you know, what, at least in my era, what we thought our overall organization would be called upon to do. That's a great example of exactly what we thought we'd do and, and how it will all, would all go down in a, in a synchronized type uh, event, and, uh, and it went really well. I mean, we lost some folks. It's dangerous business, but it went really well. What what went through your mind, or what did you say when you had the chip light? Uh, so some background, you were, you were sitting on a FARP, you know, 500 meters away from this firefight where you got paratroopers coming down and, and all kinds of things going on, and you were there as the, uh, the, the fuel bird, and then you get a, a main module chip light. What was the what was your reaction then? Well, we knew we overstressed the darn thing. You know, we, we they had thrown more uh, rockets and ammunition on board the aircraft than than we had planned. But it's H hour. It's time to go. And you know, we thought, uh, you know, if we can if we can get the bird off the ground, we're going to do it. And we did. And uh, I did some backwards planning to try to figure out how much that thing actually weighed, and it was it was well over. 22, probably closer to 23,000 pounds, and it was an alpha model. So it, that's, you know, that's way over what that thing is supposed to carry, and not, not by design. You know, we've never done it in a, in a training situation, but we had, you know, this was a critical part of this mission, and uh, there was no time to resolve the problem, so we did it. Anyway, when we got down there, as we were sitting on, on the ground, the chip light came on, and, you know, the choice, again, is do you just, shut the aircraft down and risk being overrun by the Panamanian soldiers as they're, you know, fleeing the airfield, or do you take the chance to get the bird back to the airfield, recover it and get it repaired? And, uh, you know, there's lots of other indications that are probably going to occur if the transmission really is about to fail. And, uh, there were, none of those were present. So we certainly, you know, we're cautious about how we, uh, we monitored the aircraft on the way back, but, uh, we felt that was the right decision to get it out of harm's way and get ourselves out of harm's way. And in the end, it was, it, it truly was just a chip light. I mean, that's just one of many times I'm sure you have, uh, all the, the Black Hawk engineers and designers in very high regard. It's an amazing machine. It really is. And, and it just keeps getting better. You know, it's, uh, it's going to be around for a long time. And, uh, uh, you know, I think anyone's ever flown them will tell you it's, uh, it's just an absolute, uh, workhorse and, has always been there for me when I need it, I can tell you that. Sean Coyle's a previous guest I've had on the show, and he talks, he's a Canadian test pilot, and he talks about uh, different helicopter types, and he says about the Black Hawk, he's never ever flown another helicopter that says, you know, beat me as much as the Black Hawk does. I agree 100%. Now, the, the direct action penetrators, like I'd seen maybe five years ago, I saw a video on YouTube of one of these ones doing a you know a gun run, and I, and I thought it must have just been like a prototype or something. I had no idea that you guys were actually you know flying these. So, can you describe uh, for folks listening, you know what the what the modifications were and, and what this thing looked like when it was finished? Yeah, you know it's like if all of this is not exciting and fun enough, we had the opportunity to uh, basically develop a, an attack helicopter, and 
I was right there at ground zero and, and just, you know, just good luck and timing that a guy named uh, Cliff Walcott, who was a very good friend of mine, was uh, really a spearhead of, of arming the Blackhawk for the 160th. And the, the idea was nothing against Apaches. They're a great machine, but they are, you know, they have a very specific mission. And outside of that specific mission, uh, you don't get the capability that, in our minds, you got out of an armed Blackhawk. So we felt like, you know, putting weapons on on our aircraft was a better solution than trying to integrate an Apache into the into the regiment or in, into the task force. So we were given the green light to go off and do it. And we, in the end, as far as weapons go, it ended up actually in many ways very similar to an Apache. We put rocket pods on there, which is you know a staple for any uh, attack helicopter. Um, we took our mini guns and, and put some uh, additional hardware in there to, so that it allowed you to fix them forward so that they would be you know, basically fixed weapons and controlled from the cockpit. Even though it's on that same mount that would be used for side fire, all you had to do is you know put a few pins in, and now it's a it's controlled from the cockpit, and, and you know you point the aircraft and shoot. And then we put the 30 millimeter, the M230, which is the same gun that's on the Apache, but we set it up where it's not turret mounted, it's fixed mounted on the wing, and we could actually have two of them. So that's that was always the uh, the one up on the Apaches that we thought we had is that uh, you know we can we can go in with two 30s, not just one. And we also felt that with it being a fixed weapon, as long as it's bore sighted correctly and and you know what you're doing, it's a little bit more precise. I mean, we could put 30 millimeter rounds. Uh, on target, and and uh, you know the patches have improved a lot, and the ballistics have gotten the, the uh, algorithms and equations and software has gotten a lot better. And there, it's a very accurate weapon today. But back then, it was more of an area fire weapon. And with ours fixed forward like they were, we could put 30 millimeter rounds dead on where we wanted them. And then we put Hellfire on there as well. And Cliff and I actually were the first guys to ever shoot a Hellfire off a of Blackhawk uh, in a test out west. And, uh, you know, today we have uh, air-to-air missiles on there. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it is a highly capable attack. And if you need it to be, assault the helicopter all in one. And you can carry a reload in the back, in the cabin. Absolutely. Yeah, so you're on FARP if you want to be. Look, our engineers, and I guess it comes back to, you know, a peacetime training sort of engineering system. But, um, you know, to, to modify... A box in the in the cockpit for the radio it could take <laughs> you know, months of paperwork and things like that. So for the guys working on this, you know, putting these things on, you must go bent a lot of, um, I guess, process rules. We had a process that we had to follow, but it was it was streamlined. You know, the the problem that large military organizations have typically is is there's a lot of people that have to say yes <laughs> in the special ops world. Back then, it's not it's not quite as streamlined today, but it's still more streamlined than the conventional force. But back then, we didn't have to check all those same boxes. I mean, we did what had to be done. I mean, we're not out there just you know throwing things on the aircraft and and putting people's lives at risk. We're still you know doing the airworthiness and we're still doing the engineering analysis. But it it, it doesn't have to go through you know I'll exaggerate here ten different offices to get approved. It goes through just what it has to go through. Get it signed off. You know the, the the risk can be taken at someone within the special operations command level, and that's that's what allowed us to get things done pretty quickly. I mean, really, we we built an attack helicopter, you could argue, in 
I don't know, less than two years. And then you were the first one to actually use that in anger on, on the Scud missiles in Norak? I was. Not all that glamorous of a story, but I was. <laughs> okay, it goes downhill quick after that, and um, folks, yeah. folks can read yeah. that in the book. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of uh, a lot of ribbing and hazing over that. No fault of my own, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, sometimes those things just happen. Well, we'll leave that suspense and folks can, uh, can read about that one. All right, I'll come to the time. We better um, – I was going to – Basically, talk uh, quickly. You know, then there's another big mission in, in Kuwait. Uh, there's rescue and a lead up for that, which didn't um, then end up coming off. But again, you talk about that in the book, so I'll leave that. Um, biggest bugbear with the Black Hawk is, is there anything you would change if you if you had the ability to? Uh, the aircraft itself. Yeah, or, or the systems, or the, the airframe, or, or the aircraft. The only thing that I still think is somewhat troublesome today, at least based on my interaction with the folks that are flying today, is. For whatever reason, there still seems to be a problem with reliable communications, and I just I don't understand it. If you, if you, if you remember reading in the book in the in, in the prologue, I make a statement about it's 1993. You'd think we could have a radio that worked, and in some cases, in some respects, those challenges and those difficulties still exist today, and it's just beyond my ability to comprehend why we can't have radios at this point that work 100% of the time because you know, I think everybody that flies understands you know, when nothing's going on and you're just flying cross-country, you don't need to maybe communicate all that much, but when something goes wrong or something changes or there's a crisis in play, comms are king. And uh, to not have 100% reliable communications to me is just impossible to even comprehend. That's funny, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, we had the same problem. And um, I mean, our GPS kit was like 20 years old as well, and uh, they've upgraded since. But yeah, the, the airframe was great, but um, uh, the yeah, electronics weren't, weren't brilliant. You know, sometimes it's a user issue. You know, they're they're in some cases they're complicated, and the crypto gets you know loaded improperly, or who knows what. But you know, I, I would have thought, you know, with what we and, and you hear people say this all the time, and I'll go ahead and say it because it is appropriate. But you know, with what you can do on your Apple iPhone, and as easy as that works, it, it sure ought to be a little bit easier and be more reliable uh, in the aircraft. Yeah, well, we're now actually using you know electronic flight bags and, and stuff like that too. So that stuff's just yeah. you know it didn't exist even you know five years ago. So. And I guess when we get to what you're doing now with your uh, your business as well, I guess you're filling in some of that, that training gaps. So uh, I'll get to that shortly. All right, Mike, let's jump to Somalia. There's the movie and heaps of things we'll talk about shortly. And, and there's a lot of lot of coverage out there. You've done lots of interviews. There's lots of videos on YouTube that cover uh, a lot of the things in details. I was just going to quickly go through some of the, the flying side of things and um, not so much go into you know, the, the capture and other bits and pieces. But can you kind of describe the... The flying operations, like you, you know, the airfield seems so close to the, to the city. Um, what sort of heights and speeds and formations were you flying over the top of Mogadishu? You know, what what was the sort of day to day feel and look of the setup? Yeah, most of most of the flying was in fairly large formations. You know, normally we're flying between twelve, eighteen, sometimes more than twenty aircraft. Combination of Little Birds and Blackhawks. We did not have any Chinooks with us, and. Uh, we're flying right over the rooftops. I mean, we're, we are, uh, which in the end, I believe actually further aggravated the situation. Uh, you know, I'm not sure tactically there was really a reason to do that. Although, you know, it certainly does 
cut down uh, the the window that a threat has to engage you for sure. But anyway, we were doing that, and uh, about 50-50 in terms of day versus uh, night vision goggle, and uh, almost all of it in the city itself. In the city itself, uh, about 800,000 people, so it's a pretty big town. And all of the... Uh, we called signature flights, which were basically to desensitize the, uh, the the enemy to our presence. The idea being, if we're going on an actual mission, we don't want this to be the first time that they see us. You know, if they, if they think, oh, they're just out flying around again, they may not react so quickly. So uh, we were flying what we were calling you know, those type of signature flights. There was, uh, you know, some threat, but it wasn't extreme. It, it was uh, obviously a small arms threat. We knew they had rocket propelled grenades, RPGs, but they were not using them. And we didn't believe they had a large supply. We didn't believe that they felt that the RPGs would be effective against our aircraft, certainly not in route. So really it was a matter of, you know, staying on the move, making yourself hard to hit and, uh, you know, getting in and out quickly to uh, ensure uh, protection against the threat. In terms of obstacles, like was there, you know, many uh, towers and antennas and poles and and wires and things like that? Like, what was uh, it? So not the really, there? not really. A few tall towers, but we knew where they were. Uh, most buildings were uh, maybe six, seven stories or below. In fact, the vast majority were probably only two or three stories. No big power lines. Most of the wires on all the poles had been had been either ripped down or taken down already in the in the coup that had occurred. So, you know, the city was in shambles. So in terms of, you know, threat to flight, really not much more than the dust. I mean, the dust was pretty rough because, uh, you know, a lot of streets were not paved. So you're going into, you know, streets that have been pulverized by foot traffic and, and carts and cars and who knows what for, for decades. So very, very, very dusty. There's a couple of YouTube videos, um, you know, looking down as the little birds approach and yeah like the, the dust was looks amazing in those and the other impression from and again it's funny when you you see something like it in the movie and then try and you know relate that back to real life is and because it was filmed in, in morocco I, I had this impression that it was more uh, built up as in more sort of taller buildings but a lot of the photos actually look like it's you know single story corrugated iron shanty town type setup right yeah exactly I mean, there, there was some, you know, I think Somalia or Mogadishu in its heyday was a, I wouldn't, I don't know if I call it thriving, but it was, it was a fairly advanced city for, for that part of Africa anyway. You know, there were, there were universities and soccer stadiums and, you know, it was, they had progressed pretty far, but, but when they, uh, when they overthrew the government, it, uh, it basically destroyed everything. All right, there's, there's a whole heap of military things here, and what I'll do in the show notes, I'll, I'll link to a talk, uh, Mike, that you gave the uh, Army War College, I think it is, because like, that was just excellent in, in talking about the military sort of lead-up and, and the lessons learned and things like that. Uh, so just to focus on the on the flying side, obviously you're on, on a capture mission. Uh, the formation had went out, and we're off to, to capture some bad guys, and they're going to detail. So you, you get called back in to, to cover and, and provide fire protection in a particular area there, and then you get hit by an RPG. So can, can you talk about, I guess, that process just leading up to being being hit, and then from a you know in the in the cockpit that next sort of couple of you know really short minutes, I guess, be, between there and, and being on the ground. Sure. Um, 
obviously the battle had heated up. We lost uh, Super 6-1, who we end up replacing. And then the search and rescue bird gets shot down. So two birds have been shot down. One crashed in the city and the other makes it back to the airfield. The, the search and rescue bird made it back. So we know we're going into a hornet's nest. And um, you know, I remember telling the crew chiefs on the way in that I was going to arm the weapons because we had control of the master arm up front for their miniguns but didn't want them shooting until we could figure out where everyone was on the ground. And, I, you know, I think anyone that's ever flown in combat in an urban environment will say the same thing. It's very difficult to keep situational awareness because you, you don't have line of sight to, to all the friendlies. I mean, they're all, you know, they're taking cover in doorways and behind walls. So as, as you're flying through the area, you, you can't see most of them because that's the idea. They're taking cover. So, so we were trying to sort that out. And, and we made it around the target area probably three times. And we're, we're at about 70 knots. Um, you really can't go much faster than that because if you go faster than that, at that low altitude, you can't see anything because the streets and alleys are passing too quickly. So we're, we're trying to find that balance between fast enough where we're hard to hit but not so fast that we can't sort out what's happening on the ground because our, uh, that's our main objective is Let's find all the friendlies, figure out where the enemy is so we can start to provide fire support, which is why we're in there to begin with. What sort of height are you at while you're doing this? Uh, probably about 70 feet. Okay. Yeah, uh, again, just over the, the, the rooftops. And we make it around maybe three times. And I was uh, flying. I mean, Ray and I were alternating on missions. And uh, I mean, I was the flight lead and pilot in command. But I mean, we, we, you know, I would fly one day and he would fly the next. And it's just how we did it. So on this particular day, I was flying, and I remember distinctly it, we were making left turns. So I'm looking through the cockpit as we're making these, because it's a pretty small circle that we're trying to maintain. Um, and uh, we made it around. We had the doors off. And we we routinely flew with the cockpit doors off because uh, you get much better visibility, and, and because of that dust, you need every cue you can get. So. Uh, we, we are we we are flying with doors off, and uh, I remember uh, the way I describe it. And it's so long ago, I can't distinctly remember the feeling. But it, this feeling, like we ran over a speed bump in a parking lot. Now, if you've ever been over a speed bump at you know 25 miles an hour faster than you should, you get that jolt in, in the car. Uh, that's what it felt like when that RPG hit the tail. Didn't know where it hit because we never saw it, and. Uh, just knew we'd been hit by something. So I, I leveled out, came out of the turn, and was trying to figure out, you know, are we, you know, is this a, a superficial wound here or uh, do we have some kind of a, a major problem? And, and looking in the cockpit, nothing seemed out of order. So I looked up and I could see the airfield was about two miles away. So I felt like, I mean, we've been hit by something. It was not small arms, so probably our best bet is let's let's go down to the airfield, put it on the ground, get a look at it, and and then come back out. So that's what I decided to do, and and I'm heading toward that that uh, target in the distance, and suddenly the uh, loud whine starts to build and you start to feel this high frequency vibration in the aircraft. And I don't know if it was just before this or just after, but the air mission commander came on the radio and said we were hit bad and we better put it on the ground. And I'm still thinking that 
putting it on the ground here is not a great idea because there's a firefight going on here. We're going to crash this thing in the middle of the city. There's no good place to land. And, you know, it's just not where you want to be. So I felt like it made more sense to, I, I can see the airfield. It's right there in front of me. Go for that. And uh, probably within maybe 20 seconds, the tail rotor completely disintegrated. What had happened was the, the RPG hit below the intermediate gearbox, uh, or the tail gearbox, I'm sorry, just, just below the 105-degree gearbox up on the tail. And uh, it caused enough damage where it created an out-of-balance condition, and it basically just caused the tail rotor and the gearbox to explode. Uh, there was a couple folks that saw it, and they said that uh, they didn't even see parts fly off. It looked like it turned into vapor. It just completely disintegrated. And and when it did, that was uh, you know that that high frequency sound and and the vibration was the buildup to that catastrophic failure, and and as soon as it failed and and disintegrated, I distinctly remember as the nose started to turn, looking down in disbelief at at my feet, knowing that I'm doing the right thing, physically you know after flying that much in your life it's automatic it's it's just you do what needs to be done and don't even think about it. And, and I remember looking down thinking, I'm doing the right thing, and the aircraft is not responding. And, and that's when the real realization came that, you know, we got a major problem here. And and we started to spin very, very violently. And, and the problem we had was we didn't have any altitude to play with, and we didn't have much airspeed. And when the tail left the aircraft, we had a CG shift, which caused the nose to dip. So now this thing wants to go down and we have nowhere to go down. So I got to pull the cyclic back to stop that. When I did that, we decelerated a little bit more even. And now with a black box, the stabilator starts going down. Well, what does that do? That dips the nose again. So we end up in this situation where I almost was forced to get us into a flat spin to keep it from nosing over into the ground. And, and, you know, if you tried it 50 times, you could have maybe come up with a different outcome, but in that, you know, no time to think, no time to plan automatic reaction. The, the instinct was, you know, obviously you don't want to nose this thing over and fly it into the ground. So we ended up in a flat spin. And, and once we ended up in that flat spin, we were spinning, you know, I've seen videos of, of helicopters that have completely lost their tail rotors and it, scares the heck out of me to see it thinking that you know, I was in that at one point in my life. It's just phenomenal because you think about, you know, the, all the torque that's going on in the rotor system and all that force that's driving the fuselage in the other direction. And that's, that's what was happening. And at that point, the only thing I think most helicopter people know that you can do is shut those engines off. So we did. And, uh, unfortunately a Blackhawk is, uh, not designed for, you know, a, a full auto rotation, it'll do it, but it's not, it's not the best aircraft for that. Uh, and, uh, what made the situation worse is the spin never stopped. So I, I could not see the ground. I never saw the ground coming and don't know if I did pull cushion or not, but all I know is we hit the ground, we were still spinning. You could tell by the damage to the aircraft that it was still rotating when we hit the ground and we were in a semi-powered state. And, and the reason we were is that Ray Frank, who who actually pulled the engines off, my, my co-pilot, uh, he couldn't get them all the way off. He got one halfway and one about a third of the way back. And the reason I know all this is we talked about it after we regained consciousness. And, uh, you know, I remember looking up at him and seeing one of the power control levers was about halfway and one was about two-thirds forward. 
And the reason he couldn't get him back is the spin was so aggressive that he could not hold his arms up. It was just forcing his body uh, down, and he lost uh, the ability to, to keep his arms up and, and manipulate those power control levers. So, Mike, for, for folks who don't know, can you describe the, the PCLs, um, I guess, the location and how you'd physically reach them normally? Yeah, they're 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 up overhead and on the on top of the windshield, basically forward uh, upper console, and and if you sit naturally in the seat, you have to reach a bit to get to the forward position on the PCL. So if 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 there's any force being put on your body, it and it's understandable how that would be hard to get up there and then hold that thing and get it back. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on. It's hard to say whether or not he just, you know, couldn't hold his arms up or, you know, we were so low once he pulled those PCLs off, even partway, we descended so quickly that, you know, we hit the ground before he got any further. I don't know. But uh, in the brief discussion we had after the fact, uh, the conclusion I reached was he just couldn't keep his arms up because that spin was so violent. And it, and it accelerates, you know, it starts out and then gets faster and faster and faster as the aircraft starts spinning around. So. Yeah, that's what I'd imagine. Because even in a simulator, when they you know, hover and they, they simulate a tower out of failure, you know, you get the you know again it's just simulated but the vibration and the spin. It's you know it, it takes a, a fair reach and a fair bit of time to get those PCLs back. Right, and you know I, I'm on the control still, and the only thing I'm thinking is don't let this thing flip over because you know these aircraft are designed for for impacts on the gear and. Uh, uh, I'm focusing on that and, and trying to maintain situational awareness. And, you know, the only thing I could see is a brown horizon line. That's all I could see. I could see a you know, blue sky above and brown below. But in terms of, you know, distinguishing buildings or the ground or anything, I couldn't see any of that. So I don't recall ever seeing that ground coming. And we hit it pretty hard. In the crash, so you, you broke your – well, before we talk about that, the, the, the other thing I found really interesting in the book when you're retelling it is the, the Blackhawk seat strokes, and there's a big uh, cavity underneath where the seat strokes down in, in the front. And you said when you, when you rega- or regain consciousness that you're still level with the floor. So normally you'd sit, you know, 20 inches above the floor, however high the, the seat sits, but you were actually then level with the, the, the floor of the cabin. Right. That, the seat, I mean, the gear stroked, obviously, and in fact, they stroked and then broke off. The, the right gear... You know, if you're familiar with Blackhawks, where that where that main landing gear strut attaches at the top is a massive piece of metal. That thing completely broke off, and uh, and then my seat also absorbed some of the impact, and it stroked all the way down, and it broke off and was sort of cocked off slightly in a in the full down position. And so you had uh, two vertebrae in your back were essentially uh, pulverized. Um, you, you talk about it in the book, and then your your femur uh, was broken on the on the chair seat as well in, in the impact. Yes, and uh, and, I, and I was unconscious for probably three or four minutes. I would estimate. Okay, and then yeah, uh, with that details and things go you know quite downhill. Uh, there's four of you injured, um, and again, it's the scene of a battle um, with. Uh, the, the mob around and I guess the things to highlight here do you want to talk about um, uh, Randy and, and Gary and uh, I guess just pay uh, tribute to, to them and the rest of the crew um, in, in that next little bit between then and, and when you get captured yeah so so Randy Sugart and Gary Gordon uh, Delta operators are on board another aircraft Super 6-2 and uh, Super 6-2 uh, 
overflies our position. And they they see movement on the ground. And I think it was me. I was moving a piece of uh, of a tin roof out of the windshield that had come through the glass. And uh, they got on the radio and asked for permission to be dropped off. And initially, the commander says no. And, you know, I understand that. I, I realize that, you know, at this point there's limited assets and uh, he's got to put them where he thinks they can do some good. But uh, Randy and Gary don't take no for an answer. You know, again, I'm not. This is not first information. I, I'm I'm told this by others, but they they request uh, three times, and finally on the third time, they're given permission to go in. So uh, Super Six Two drops them off to the rear of our aircraft, and they make their way up alongside. And as it turns out, they come up along my side of the aircraft first. Uh, so they're coming from the tail along the right, and. Uh, I see them suddenly standing there. And I, at, at that point, I thought, you know, this is a rescue force. I don't know how they got here. But uh, amazingly enough, we're, we're all going to get out of here okay. And what I don't realize, it's only two guys. And uh, although they're amazing warriors, uh, they were vastly outnumbered. And uh, and the next American to get to our site is going to be about eight hours later. So we're on our own for the long haul. And uh in the in the firefight that ensues, uh, Gary and Randy are both killed, as is the rest of the crew, and uh, and we're overrun in probably 20 minutes. But the Somalis say that uh, there were between 25 and 30 Somalis killed just at our crash site from the firefight. So uh, I, I credit uh, Randy and Gary for most, if not all, of that, and uh, just give you some insight into just how. Uh, Courageous and, and uh, what uh, what amazing marksmen they were, and, and uh, you know I owe them my life. And they were they were posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. And uh, you know until the recent conflicts, that's that had been the first one since Vietnam. So it had been 20, 25 years since since the previous uh, Medal of Honor recipients. I get uh, I get chills down the back of my spine just hearing you talk about that. But you know, or, you know, very, very wet eyes and shed a tear. There's a, there's a letter in the in the book that um, I think it's Randy's wife uh, writes to you that you include in the book. And uh, yeah, uh, again, <laughs> it's well worth uh, for anyone listening to to go and get the book to to read that. Mike, you then get captured, and we'll leave that um, for for people to read the book. One question I had about the the situation there on the ground, and you know, not to, to quarterback things, but it seems like there's still a lot of aircraft in the air at the time, but there's no other sort of aerial protection uh, came to cover you guys. Was there a was there a, a sort of a requirement they were used elsewhere, or what was the, the background for that? Yeah, it was just simply a matter of uh, too many, too much need and not enough resources. To, because at this point in the battle, you've got you've got the assault force that's on the target, and they're still trying to get off the target. You've got the first crash site, Super Six One, that a lot of that assault force is is moved to to try to uh, rescue those folks. So you got those two sites. You have a, a ground vehicle convoy that's trying to get to both of those locations, and they are under fire. And and then you have us. So we were the least in number. We were the most isolated. And I think the the assessment was we probably couldn't be saved. And, you know, I don't want to put words or thoughts in, in anybody's mouth, but I think that's probably the feeling. And um, the the assets that were available were 
were put to use uh, where they thought they could do some good. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, like there must be so many different individual stories, you know, valor and things that come out of that, but, but sticking to the aviation side, um, you know, there was, as you said, there was a lot of other stuff going on. So, uh, the, uh, Stan Wood, you talk about, um, him in super 66. So he comes in again as a, as a resupply. So there's that one. I don't know if you want to talk about, uh, that approach. And then, uh, Dan, uh, forgive me if I get the pronunciation wrong, but Jolana, Jolana. yeah, yeah uh-huh. basically crashes one at the seaport and then borrows or takes another helicopter and comes straight back out and, and is then overhead for another couple of hours. Can you talk about those sort of other isolated incidents that happened to the other air crew? Sure. Yeah, actually, there's there's three particular stories I'd like to touch on, although, as you say, there are probably hundreds that could be touched on. Uh, Dan is the first one. He he was flying the search and rescue bird, so he ends up being the second aircraft shot down, and and uh, they are hovering near the first shoot-down uh, Super 6-1 site, trying to get a rescue team onto that uh, crash site. They've still got people hanging on the ropes, and they get hit by an RPG. It gets hit in the side, and, and it, it, to me, that one moment in time reinforces why training and communication and discipline and everything that we stress in aviation is so important because so much was happening in that aircraft at that point in time, and, and that crew handled it exactly the way it was supposed to be handled. You know, They didn't overreact. They got those last three guys on the ground. You know, They cut those ropes just like they were supposed to do. Uh, you know, they, they they kept communicating and and they successfully got that bird out of there. Uh, it, it was hit pretty bad. The uh, the RPG hit on the left side near the uh, APU exhaust. For those who are familiar with Blackhawks, it had enough force that it it uh, damaged the rotor blade. When the, when the aircraft was sitting there parked, it looked like someone had taken a big bite out of one of the the, the rotor blades. It just blew a big piece of the of the blade itself off, but the spar was intact. So. So the bird uh, kept flying okay. But they got that bird back to the airfield and uh, jumped in a spare. And then that crew flew uh, for another uh, 16 hours uh, before they stopped. So that's their story. Um, the other, the second story I'd like to, to touch on is uh, Carl Meyer and Keith Jones. And they're little bird pilots. They, uh, they landed near also near that first crash site to uh, personally get out of the aircraft and recover some of the wounded shooters that were in the back of that first shot down bird. The little bird doesn't have crew chiefs. So Carl is sitting in the aircraft, blades turning, holding the controls, trying to defend himself while they're sitting on the ground. Keith is running back and forth, getting these wounded out of the aircraft, the downed aircraft, and throwing them in the back of this little bird. RPGs are exploding on the wall. Carl is shooting uh, you know, while he's trying to hold the controls, Keith jumps back in. They get that bird out of there and get those folks to safety. And then they came back out, and they actually end up landing at my crash site as well. But they weren't close enough where uh, I could hear or see them, and they took too much fire to stay on the ground, so they had to take back off. But to me, those guys deserved the Medal of Honor, I thought. Uh, they both ended up getting silver stars. Uh, the uh, the third one is Stan Wood, as you mentioned earlier, and uh, you know, he, he's a great friend of mine, lifelong friends, and uh, he was one of the aircraft in my flight. And then after I got shot down, he was uh, he was called upon to do a resupply mission. They will end up fighting all through the night, and, and we're planning on about a two-hour mission. So they're out of they're out of water, they're out of IV bags, they're out of ammunition, and he makes a run down this street 
where these troops were in contact, all they did is put an infrared strobe light out in the street to mark their location, and they dropped all of these supplies off on the run. They never stopped. They just sort of you know, did a fast hover down the street, kicking boxes out the door. And uh, from what I understand, it was all almost within arm's reach for the for those customers to reach out and, and pull that stuff into the buildings that they were taking cover in. And that one pass, Stan's aircraft, we I think took somewhere around 27 rounds. Uh, so just, again, the stories go on and on. It's just an amazing, uh, amazing thing to have been a part of. And uh, and Dan, his wife was also a pilot at the at the airfield. I mean, you know, it's uh, there's so many stories involved. It's crazy. Um, a couple of just real snippets from the time when you're in capture is, you know, you had all these injuries, but you're still doing isometric exercises in the cell. So I think that's just a bit of an insight for folks on you know your kind of mindset and background. And then uh, again, you talk about the, the day where they, they fly overhead with uh, speakers at the side of the aircraft playing ACDC. Uh, to try and you know let you know that uh, they're still hanging in there for you, and uh, I was going to ask that whole time. How far do you? What was the biggest distance you think you were actually from the airfield um, during those eleven days? It's really hard to say. You know, I, I've I've looked at maps and I've looked at photos and tried to figure out where in the world I was, and and actually uh, I was just reunited with uh, the Red Cross uh, worker who who uh, met with me. I'd been reunited with her years ago, but we just did the 20th anniversary basically. And, uh, and I, and I told her where I thought I was and I was complete opposite of where I was when she visited me. So, uh, you know, they did a pretty good job of, you know, covering up my head with a tarp and, you know, taking various turns here and there throughout the city as I moved. So I, in terms of having any awareness whatsoever of where I was, it was, uh, if if I had escaped, I probably would have headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> sure. My strategy was to head for the ocean. I guess I could have done that, but uh, I, I I had no clue where I was. And, and then something that just really rolled me up is that the fact you talk about your wife back home. She was you know being cornered in uh, airport restrooms by reporters, and, and that just you know that's, <laughs> that's just terrible. Yeah, they, you know they are just. Uh, uh, they're vultures, I guess. I, I don't know. You know, they're they uh, they're doing anything they can to get that story, and uh, it's unfortunate because you know you're 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 taking advantage of people that are already in a pretty difficult time in their lives, and and uh, you know I know they got a job to do, but there's there's certain lines that shouldn't be crossed, and they tend to cross them. Yeah. Just time-wise, Mike, it's uh, just over an hour. I'm sure people listening will be hanging on their seats, but um, are you okay to keep going for a little bit longer? Uh, sure, a couple more minutes, yeah. All right, I, I put up a, a question to someone on my own personal Facebook saying I was chatting you today, and uh, Adrian, uh, he's uh, well, was an Army pilot, he had a, a question just asking. Uh, his question is, a lot of piracy now occurs off the, the coast of Somalia, and he's asking, does he think that the, the Somalis you know, remember what happened uh, to yourself? And uh, and then subsequently, you know, hijacking foreign vessels for personal gain was an evolution from those sort of tactics in the nineties. Yeah, I do think it's an evolution for sure. I don't think it necessarily is specifically related to you know any recollection of what happened back then. It's just culturally, you know, who they are. They they there's not much there. There's no industry. There's, there's no real agriculture. I mean, it's hard to survive there. 
and in those, it's like a bad neighborhood in a big city. In, in those, in those environments, uh, people tend to, uh, not everyone, but a lot tend to uh, migrate or move toward, you know, finding an easy way to make a buck, whether it's crime, selling drugs. In Somalia, it's it's piracy or it's kidnapping, and and it's you know to me it's just a way for them to to find an easy way to make a buck it's it's just like that young vulnerable teenager that you know gets involved in a gang it uh when there's not much else to live for uh which unfortunately there isn't there um, those temptations are pretty strong with your profile now like is there places in the world you don't travel like is there any is there still any you know this this time on is there any personal risk to you now um, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I've gone back to the Middle East several times. Uh, um, I've been to Saudi Arabia and uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and, uh, you know, all throughout Europe. And I don't really believe there's any additional threat because of what happened to me. You know, I've always thought that if I let that kind of thing restrict me from doing the things that I want to do or need to do, then, then in some way they won. And, and I don't want them to think they won in any way whatsoever. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, it's funny because the first time I went back to the Middle East, I know a lot of folks at work were wondering why I was, I was going to go do that. And the thing about it, you know, I don't know if, if, if any of your listeners have been to Dubai or Abu Dhabi and places like that, it's, it's more like Europe. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not, you know, Somalia or, uh, or Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, I, I, these are, very westernized and and safe places, quite honestly. So I'm, I'm going to live my life and do the things I need to do. Fantastic. All right, I'm going to cherry pick some of these questions now just to, to cut things short, but, you know, there's so much here. Like you then went back and there's a whole story involved in how you got back to, to flying duties and then you spent another five years in, in the 160th. So, you know, there's a whole section there as well. But I wanted to quickly touch on Transition back to civilian life. Uh, so, and I guess it's you know a fairly broad uh, audience. This from anyone going from you know such a high intensity military uh, sort of career back into civilian life. You know, what were some of your biggest challenges there, and do you still fly at all? Um, and, I, and I had a question written down here: is you know what makes Mike Durant get up in the mornings each day? Yeah, well, the, I guess the first uh, realization that I came to uh, in terms of transitioning next phase of my life was when I looked up at the upper console and uh, my eyes were more than 40 years old and I couldn't read the text. <laughs> sure. That's a humbling, that's a humbling experience for, you know, someone who's had great vision their whole life and has a profession that relies heavily on having great vision and, and reading glasses are fine. But, you know, to me, if, if you're flying uh, 30 feet over the water, blacked out night and a multi-ship formation with night vision goggles on and, uh, special operators in the back, I probably need good eyes. And, and I just thought, this is a game for the young. I don't want to, you know, we have various sports figures here in the U.S. who stay in the sport too long and you wish they'd have left three years ago. And uh, I didn't want to be that guy. So I, I decided that, uh, you know, that, that was the right time to say I've had a heck of a run here and let me go try something else. I also wanted to be young enough to have a really full second career, uh, you know, retiring from the military at uh, at 40, that's not the end of your life. And uh, I, I wanted to to do it at a point where I still had a lot to offer. And uh, 
I think it was the right decision. I miss it. I really do. But, but I do think it was the right decision. And today, you know, I started my own company seven and a half years ago and, uh, we're still heavily involved in aviation. We have Blackhawk pilots and we do aircraft maintenance and develop training products and support NASA. We've got all kinds of things going on and, uh, you know, we're still right in the heat of battle and just contributing in a different way. And, uh, the challenges are, are to me as interesting. They're different, but, uh, it's still a challenge and it's still tough and there's a lot of tough decisions and a lot of great people involved in making it all happen. And it, it isn't exactly the same, but in some ways it feels a lot the same. And it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm blessed and fortunate to, to have this new part of my life with uh, this whole new set of challenges. Yeah. And it, it looks like, it, you know, it's, you can see the whole uh, military special operations thing repeating again, because, you know, you glossed over some of those things, but uh, your business is called uh, Pinnacle Solutions. And uh, a lot of stats here, it's had 319% growth in, in three in the last three years. And you've gone from two employees to 70 in, in about the same period. Um, you started from the home and then you spent six months where you're sharing a, a printer and a, and a fax and things like that. And uh, as you said, you now, you know, a quick from the website, there's like, you know, $33 million contracts with NASA, um, Inc. Magazine top five thousand. So it's kind of you know you're, you're, we would probably call you a thruster, I guess, in in the uh, in the Australian sort of defence context. The fact that yeah, you're on the fast track um, and uh, really making things happen. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I really wanted to do is take the culture that did exist within the special operations world and try to rebuild it in a business environment. And I don't think we've done you know done it exactly. But I do think it feels a lot like it. You know, people are very mission-focused. People understand, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. I do think we work well as a team. And, uh, you know, everybody's all in. And it's, you know, obviously something I'm very proud of to have built from from nothing and uh, and to be as successful as we are in, in really what is a very, very challenging business environment right now in the U.S. And where's the company? So five years' time, you know, what, what's your sort of – um, your mental image of the company? Well, we want to keep growing. You know, we're in three basic areas. We want to keep each of those areas growing. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really want to sell it. Most, a lot of people, you know, build companies to, to, to sell. That, that wasn't the plan from the beginning and it isn't the plan now. doesn't mean it won't happen, but that isn't really the, the objective. I think it's just to build a, you know, a place that people like, working and the people who don't work for us wish they did that that is uh i guess the essence of it uh, employer of choice i think so that's when they talk about it mike had some things up but is there one piece of flying advice that really sticks with you that you either were told by someone going through your career or that you sort of picked up yourself uh for, for people who are listening who could be a you know mustering pilot in the back of australia they could be a, an ems job in canada um, you know, flying tourists around Spain. On the flying side, what would you want to pass on to your kids if they became aircrew? Well, I'll, I'll pass on a very simple one first, which you know I think anyone that's flown more than a few days would would say, well, yeah, that's obvious. But it goes back to the to the gentleman that I flew with the first night, first time as a kid. His name was Joe Brigham, and you know he said uh, most of it is pretty boring, and really where you earn your pay is on the takeoffs and landings. And, uh, again, very simple, but, you know, for someone who has never flown, uh, 
it was it was sage advice and and you know that's where <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road literally and uh I, I will never forget that and and I think the thing that I've sort of picked up on my own and 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 uh, I think is important is is to recognize that there's always something else to learn you know i i, I there's one mistake I made that i i still kick myself over. I had about a thousand hours and I'd reached a point where, you know, I, I used the word invincible earlier. I didn't truly think I was invincible, but you have to have that confidence at the thousand hour point. I think I really did think I was invincible and I could do anything. And I, I was sort of pushing the envelope on the rules and, and, and I damaged an aircraft and, and I really have always regretted that. That's in the book too, by the way. And I think what you got to realize is that, nobody's there's only one person that's the best pilot's ever been and i don't think it's any of us and um there's always something else you can learn you got to respect you know what it is you're doing the fact that lives are on the line and and put 100 percent effort into you know preparation execution and and never ever let your guard down and think you know this is just another day in the cockpit and and nothing's going to go wrong and, and and not be prepared for that thing that one of these days is going to happen fantastic um mike look thank you so much not only just for for sharing your time today but also you know in the last couple of days of research and watching the videos and things like that the you know the way that you carry yourself and and speak and um and go about your own business uh it's just very inspirational so um you know thank you very much well i appreciate the compliment you have a have a, a great day Folks, it's absolutely worth your time to find out a bit more about the events that we touch on in this interview. If you're interested in more of the, the military background to the operations in Somalia and the lessons learned, then the best resource I've found so far is a talk that Mike delivered to the U.S. Army War College. I'll include the video and the links to all these resources I'm about to mention on the website at rotarywingshow.com. But you can find this one on YouTube yourselves just by searching Mike Durant Army War College. If you are currently serving in the military and haven't seen that talk, then you should probably just stop this episode now and jump onto YouTube and go and watch it. It's excellent. Also on the show notes for this episode on the blog, I'll include videos for the DAP Blackhawks, the Direct Action Penetrator, which are the armed Blackhawks with miniguns and rockets. There's also a video there of the little birds landing in the streets of Mogadishu. You can get an appreciation of how much dust is being thrown up when they're landing on these streets. Reading-wise, in The Company of Heroes is Mike's book about his crash and the capture, along with a look back at his career. Again, an excellent read, and you'll be forever glad that, you know, hopefully never have to go through the experience that, that Mike went through. But a, a very big warning, this is not the book that you want your wife or husband or your mum to ever read if you want to fly in the military. Mike has also co-authored a second book that I'm in the process of reading now called The Night Stalkers, you know, Top Secret Missions of the U.S. Army's Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And again, it's just filled with these characters that are just larger than life and straight out of the pages of you know superhero comics. It makes your own flying skills feel uh, extremely uh, novice to, to read about what these guys get up to. And just you know, one a quick story or snippet from the book is uh, one raid they're preparing uh, for. They actually start the little bird up, and in order to, to save weight, they they kick out the aircraft battery after they've started up uh, to you know maximize as much as possible their their performance for the mission. And that's just, you know, a very small snippet and an example of some of the things that are, are in this book. Pinnacle Solutions is a company that Mike now heads up that we spoke about briefly. 
You can find out more about the work they do at pinnaclesolutionsinc.com. If we had more time or a second interview, and it probably falls outside the scope of this show, but I'd love to know a bit more about how Mike has incorporated some of the culture from the the 160th into a a business and commercial setting. Lastly, warriorfoundation.org is a, a charity that works with injured and disabled military folks in the US that Mike has suggested that you check out if you're American and that they're doing some good work in that area. That was a warriorfoundation.org. Those videos and links to everything I've just mentioned, including the books, will be on the show notes at rotarywingshow.com. If you felt inspired or wanted to, to thank Mike for sharing his story, you can continue the conversation in the website comments under this episode. Thanks to our sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. We can pick up some help on marketing your aviation business, especially if you are a flight school. It has been awesome and a a real privilege to to bring this interview to you. Do subscribe on iTunes to get new shows as they come out and find the show on Facebook. And after you click the like button, look for the little drop-down arrow to choose See First so that any new episodes will appear at the top of your news feed. A big thank you to everyone that has shared the show with your colleagues. Have a, a great World Helicopter Day on the 16th of August. And if you're in Brisbane, Australia, then get out to Redcliffe Airfield and come say hello to me at our local open day. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and looking forward to catching you in the next episode. 